Well, because it's Friday, you know it's time to go Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Sabalero, and Medtronic is the proud sponsor of this Inside EMS podcast. Every emergency call brings a new opportunity to make a difference. Learn how capnography monitoring from Medtronic can help at medtronic.com slash EMS. And here's the man who's going to help me have a great show, my good friend Kelly Grayson. KG, how are you doing this week? I am capital, man. I am um, working on my my second semester of, uh, of degree credits for my uh, degree. And it, it is uh, tedious. <laughs> um, luckily, these classes are pretty much gimme classes anyway. But, man, that, you know. Uh, I just emailed one professor and, and said, "Hey, these these uh, these uh, lectures that you're doing, uh, um, is there any narration, or do we just look at these PowerPoint slides you put up?" And he's like, "There's no narration." So basically, I'm teaching myself this class with PowerPoint slides. Well, I got to tell you, unfortunately, that's the way a lot of college classes are. And, uh, you know, they put up the information that you've got to study and prepare for. Then you've got to write research papers or then you've got to take a test or then you've got to. So you really have to be disciplined when it comes to online education. And maybe one of the things that we talk about is, is in a future show is get some people that have taken, you know, their college degrees online and maybe talk about the differences in college programs because, you know, one of the things, Kelly, you, you know as well as I do is that there are three different kinds of learners, right? You know, you got an auditory learner, you got a visual learner, and you got a tactile learner. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we need to do when it comes to online education is to make sure that we're engaging all those learning types. And uh, when you have a PowerPoint yeah. that you have to now read and, and try to decipher on your own, that's a little bit of a challenge for the people that may not learn best that way. So, but that would be a good future show. But I think we have a great show today. You know, we're going to talk yep. about, uh, you know, the uh, National Association of EMS Physician meeting out in San Diego. And I'm going to go ahead and kick it to you and let you set it up for the listeners. We're going to reignite this debate on endotracheal intubation versus supraglottic airways. And this was a, a topic of discussion. Uh, at the National Association of EMS Physicians annual meeting and uh, uh, a couple of uh, several leading lights in in EMS medical directors in the United States uh, kind of squared off on the stage and and debating this topic and one of them being Henry Wang who's who's a prolific research on pre-hospital airway management kind of highlighted the issue that we have in EMS with with endotracheal intubation uh, frankly that we suck at it and uh, and Wang pointed pointed these things out, and uh, we had uh, Dr. Wang and uh, and uh, Ricardo Colella from Milwaukee County EMS, and uh, Dr. Sayer from Medical Director of Kings County Medic One, uh, discussing this. And and the, you know the the consensus was there was no real winner in the debate. There, there are good and bad things to be said about the state of pre-hospital airway management, specifically endotracheal intubation. But, but first, from, from your perspective, Chris, as a, as a uh, past service medical, I mean, a service uh, director, how comfortable did you feel with your troops intubating? And did you, were you starting to notice a problem with skill maintenance and, and rust out, uh, uh, with endotracheal intubation. Yeah, I got to tell you, I mean, I, I was very, very strict when it came to my uh, folks' intubation. You know, uh, we've talked about it on the show before. They got one look, 
and the opportunity to pass uh, the tube one time. And I, we defined the pass by the balloon uh, going past the teeth. And if you, you know, you know the anatomy mm -hmm. and you know the, the, you know where that uh, blade needs to be. And if you can't put that through the cords in one shot, you're done. This isn't about your ego. And you are now going to go to, a, yeah. a, um, you know, a, um, a rescue airway. And, you know, one of the things that I was even looking at doing is the, the system that I was in also had eight other EMS uh, jurisdictions in it. We were all under the same medical director. And I got to tell you, Kelly, uh, I was really considering moving to the fact of uh, superglottic airways by the EMS uh, first responders. So if they recognized that an airway needed to be put in place, they were just going to go to the airway. And we were using the eye gels at the time. And they were going to put them in, which was going to stop intubation in the system. But if we go back to mm -hmm. what Henry Wang was talking about, and you know, uh, you mentioned Henry Wang. He is one of the foremost experts when it comes to airway management. He's the executive vice chair of research at the University of Texas Department of Emergency Medicine. And he's been doing this for a long time. And uh, I think everybody that's uh, familiar with EMS should have uh, some knowledge of Dr. Wang's, uh, Dr. Wang's work. So what he brought up in this, in this uh, um, discussion was the unrecognizable esophageal intubations. Kelly, we just talked about one that happened just a couple mm -hmm. weeks ago. The need for multiple attempts. We allow yeah. ego to get in the way of attempting, you know, from the uh, paramedics' uh, point of view. I mean, I can't count the number of times I say, well, why'd you try to intubate somebody seven times? Well, because they were going to give me guff when I went into the emergency room of why didn't I intubate this patient? But really, it's not about what people say about you. It's about the care of that individual. Hyperventilation and interrupted in chest compressions um, out of, uh, during out-of-hospital cardiac arrests. And the last one he brought up was the limited training and clinical exposure that people need and that they receive. And, and you talked about skill degradation. And i got to tell you, it's been years since I put a laryngoscope in somebody ma somebody's mouth. But would I have the ability to intubate to the best of my uh, experience? Um, I would like to say yes, but to be honest with you, I don't know. And in Dr. Wang's uh, part of the debate, he, he highlighted the results of the PARC trial and the Airways 2 trial, both of which compared superglottic airways uh, survival rates to intracurricular intubation. In the case of the PARC trial, 72-hour survival, and, and Airways 2, it was 30-day survival. And those two studies demonstrated fairly well well, that um, at least uh, compared to uh, uh, well-performed endotracheal intubation for the purposes of a cardiac arrest resuscitation, uh, superglottic airways are equal. Uh, they're just as good uh, and, and offer comparable uh, cardiac arrest 30-day uh, and 72-hour survival rates to endotracheal intubation, and they are far superior to poorly performed endotracheal intubation, which is by far the most common thing in uh, emergency medical services. And he also highlights the, the CAM trial uh, in France and Belgium where they, they randomized endotracheal intubation versus BVM and uh, shows that no, no increase in 28-day survival for endotracheal intubation over BVM. And this was, you know, we've had studies similar to that for pediatric airways as far back as Marianne Gauchy Hill's uh, study at, at LA and Orange County years ago comparing pediatric intubation versus BBM. So, you know, one of the problems with, with our, our 
skill rust out in airway management is we're discovering fewer uses for endotracheal intubation, cardiac arrest being one of them, significant trauma being another, uh, end-stage uh, or failing decompensated CHF with the advent of CPAP. Uh, we're all discovering that the, those things are, are well-managed by less invasive means, uh, and thus, for the few patients that we still have left that are candidates for endotracheal intubation, we're not nearly as practiced because we're not doing it enough. Um, but uh, Dr. Sayer counters with with uh, much better um, uh, or more favorable data for, for endotracheal intubation with uh, C- Seattle's program. You know, Kelly, so I think you bring up an interesting point, and it kind of goes to where I was starting out in the beginning to say, are we at a point where endotracheal intubation has become obsolete? Now, I think we need to hear the other end of this argument because, again, these are some renowned EMS physicians who are talking about, uh, you know, endotracheal intubation versus rescue airway, supraglottic airways. But, I mean, when you talk about it, you know, we say cardiac arrest. When you talk about it, we say in some trauma. Really, what is the opportunity now that we're going to have to intubate people? I mean, we could think about it from the standpoint of extreme asthma when people are getting tired. Certainly, if we have to get into a process of... Uh, rapid sequence intubation or using some pharmacological intubation. Are we now coming to a point where do we we have to let our egos get out of the way? Because, you know, back when we were doing endotracheal intubation in the field, we had the, the EOA. And we remember how that was a, a big pain in the yeah. butt when we were using that years ago. You know, we have some really great tools now, like the eye gels and so on. Uh, Is it time that we just kind of bow to them and say, you know what, if we're worried about skill degradation, if we're worried about, um, you know, people not getting the attempts that they need, is it time for it to go away? Uh, I don't think it's time for it to go away. I I think it's it's it has increasingly become one of those high risk, uh, low frequency um, procedures, much like surgical cryothyrotomy and needle decompression and that sort of thing, but still a vital skill. the question becomes, how do we maintain that vital skill for the for the small subset of patients who can potentially benefit from it? Um, I, I think, uh, in part, our this this in idea that we fostered in EMS in recent years that that everybody deserves a paramedic uh, has kind of bit us uh, bit us in the behind there as far as uh, skill rust out and skill degradation um, because. Uh, you, you get that dilution of, of attempts and, and not enough medics uh, can, can perform the procedure to remain proficient at it. Uh, Seattle's uh, data shows that the average uh, Seattle Fire Department medic intubates more, uh, at least one attempt on average, more than the average Seattle Emergency Department physician every year. Uh, in Boston, for example, you, you've got a tiered response system where their success rates at, at procedures like uh, uh, 12 lead EKG interpretation and, and uh, IV therapy and, and endotracheal intubation are comparable with the emergency department physicians are handing people off to. So I think it is possible to do uh, endotracheal intubation well uh, and, and that it's not a, a harmful procedure. Uh, the question is, is, is which patients uh, is it most beneficial for? And, and that whole cost benefit ratio, right. uh, is it worth it for the vast majority of the patients we're currently applying it to, given that we have stuff like CPAP and superglottic airways now uh, 
that are viable alternatives. One thing that, that struck me, Chris, is we, we discussed this recently at my employer. Uh, we have a, a new uh, a new guy in as, as our quality improvement manager in our area, and uh, and in crunching the numbers, he was kind of dismayed at our first pass uh, intubation success rates uh, in our district. Uh, they were not good. Uh, they were, you know, just a little over half uh, of our first passes, uh, first passes with an endotracheal tube were successful. Now, overall, we were fairly successful, uh, still nothing, nothing to brag about, but, but fairly effective. But on the first attempt, uh, a little over half our attempts were uh, only a little over half our attempts were successful on the first try. And one thing that he, he um, implemented at our, our, our last round of staff meetings is we had two hours of airway education. Uh, and and we, we practiced the salad technique. We practiced uh, using bougies. We em- emphasized uh, correct BVM ventilation and the use of the PEEP with our with our BVM devices and the, and the dangers of over-intubation and so on and so forth. Uh, and th- those things paid immediate dividends. Our success rate with endotracheal intubation jumped up 20 points this quarter since that last round of, of uh, staff meetings. So I think that... that uh, Often we don't um, just a little bit of, uh, of uh, education and skills maintenance goes a long way. The problem is, is why don't uh, more EMS systems provide that little bit of extra education or those better tools like video laryngoscopy and, and that sort of thing? Let's go ahead and save that question. But I want to go ahead and first touch on that certainty and uncertain situations. It's the one thing that you need to do your job wherever you are, and that's why Medtronics offers capnography and pulse oximetry monitoring solutions that are designed to give you early insights into your patient's breathing. Act faster and intervene sooner. Find out how at Medtronic.com slash EMS. And I think you bring up a really good point where we talk about the uh, education. But Kelly, I think that this is more than just an educational challenge or the skill or, or the practice of intubation. I think we have to take ego out of the intubation practice because I can't, I can't count the number of times in my career when somebody would intubate and you, what's the first thing that you say to somebody as soon as they, uh, you know, pull the stylet out, are you in? And how many times Kelly, have you heard? I think I'm in, I think I'm in. Well, if you think you're in, you know, we're going to have to pass another tube just to be sure. Uh, and that was another thing that would give me yeah. a little bit of heartburn is when people wouldn't think they're in and they would pull a tube. No, don't pull the tube. Leave the tube. If you're in the esophagus, leave the tube. There's only one more hole. Intubate around it. Um, that's just my pet peeve. But I think that it does come down to ego as well. To we say that, are you in? I think I'm in. Again, just for the practice of this is my ego. It's not about you as the provider. So when we think about it from an educational standpoint, when you practice the salad method, when you practice retrograde intubation, when you practice, you know, cricothyrotomy, is it really making a difference to your knowledge and to your education to say, the next time I intubate somebody, I'm going to guarantee I don't miss that tube? I don't know that that's the answer. I think continuing education is important. I think continuing education is needed to keep our knowledge fresh. But does it give us the opportunity to perform the skill better? I would argue that. I I, I do think it, it affords us the opportunity to perform the skill better. Because, first of all, the the... The how would I phrase this? Uh, the 
the psychomotor action of performing the skill itself is only a tiny part of the of the big picture, and that is an easily uh, an easily mastered thing. You know, I can fall down a flight of stairs accidentally and intubate people on the way down. I know people. You know, I've said that a million times, and. Uh, knowing when to intubate and how to set yourself up for success, the teamwork aspect of it, how to resuscitate, then intubate, as, as uh, Dr. Jarvis uh, uh, requires uh, of his medics, um, that sort of thing, to the, the prep and the, the choreography and, and the pit crew aspect of airway management, want to take that approach to it. Um, are all tiny little steps that make a huge difference in the success of, of physically performing that skill. You know, I, I've got a friend who taught an ACLS class in Boston years, uh, and, and as a goof, he took a janitor and, and dressed him in scrubs and, and gave him 15 minutes of instruction on Fred the Head uh, and had him teach airway management and tracheal intubation to a group of medical residents, and they knew they were being taught by a janitor. It's not a hard skill to perform. Um, it's a hard skill to perform under duress, and it's a hard form uh, in in less than ideal conditions when you don't have any uh, any support and you're trying to do it all by yourself. And that's the I think the biggest mistake people make is they don't they lack the education in how to to up for success and make this uh, a team sport and 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 you know make your first attempt your very best one instead of the second or third or fourth attempt where you take the time to slow down, focus, you know, you give yourself that little mental pep talk. Um, I think that mental pep talk and that slow down and focus part uh, needs to be put at the very beginning. And because we're not educated extensively enough on it, we, we tend to to rush the process and, and predictably fail. Yeah, in this article that we're talking about, of course, it was written by uh, EMS royalty, Catherine Counts, our friend Catherine Counts. And there are some memorable quotes that she uh, put in her article that really stood out. Uh, recent media reports suggest that the unrecognized esophageal placement epidemic is still very much real. That came from Dr. Wang. Uh, if you want to become widely unpopular medical director, I would suggest considering moving or altering the practice of innovation. It doesn't go over very well. That came from Dr. Colella. And uh, great training and experience with feedback are the keys to success. And careful measurement exposes these training opportunities. That came from uh, Dr. Sayer in Milwaukee. And, you know, Kelly, uh, you know, she finishes up the article where she, uh, where Catherine talks about, you know, this debate isn't going anywhere. Intubation requires the interrogation of data, which I think is true. Advanced airway management case review is the new normal. But I, I really would like to see a system take up the, take up the charge of doing a study really on rescue airway versus intubation. And I got to tell you, man, I think, unfortunately, we're going to see that intubation is, is an antiquated skill for the field. And I, I bet you see, we see better, um, better results with the rescue airway. And I'm just going to leave that there as my final thought. Well, I, I, I'm going to disagree with you there. I am a fan of, of rescue airways, and I don't even like to think of them as rescue airways because when you when you say rescue airway, it, it, the connotation is that that's your backup, your second attempt, and I think in many cases they should be our primary airway. Um, however, I, I think thus far with with the part and, and the Airways Two trial and, and this uh, this trial in in France, uh, we still have 
but compared alternative techniques like superglottic airways and BVM to well-performed endotracheal intubation. We've compared it to the average paramedic doing endotracheal intubation, and unfortunately, most of the of the paramedics and EMS are are below average, quite frankly. Um, they're not that skilled at it yet. Um, in in Seattle, uh, which are probably the you know uh, acknowledged uh, uh, most extensively educated paramedic in the United States, um, they only have one in six cases uh, of intubation require a, a cessation of chest compressions in, in order to intubate, and they're getting more tubes. Uh, a year than the than the emergency physicians uh, that they're handing the patients off to. Their their success rates are on a par with the hospitals uh, they're transporting to. So there's one where intubation performed well. Well, let's compare that to superglottic airways in that regard and see if intubation doesn't come off a little better. Uh, I still think there are some patients that that could benefit from the procedure. Your 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 uh, rapidly closing airways like uh, anaphylaxis and and smoke inhalation, for example, uh, and the, the patients that, where you have to manage a large amount of secretions uh, and that sort of thing, or where high, high peak is necessary. Those still could benefit from endotracheal intubation, but unfortunately, not many patients uh, can, can, are capable of performing uh, inter, endotracheal intubation all that well. Uh, the norm in EMS is, is average. So that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. How does your system perform at endotracheal intubation? And if they're performing well, what are you doing that's different than the rest of the country? We'd like to know at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself and co-host Chris Ciballero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week.